Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to True Restoration. Here is your host. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Spiritual Life. I am Father Bernard Utley. And today, my topic is again contemplation, but instead of moving on with other aspects of this kind of prayer, uh, it will be a short summary of the previous two episodes. Admittedly, the first two episodes of contemplation were very long, hours long, and perhaps not many were able or willing to wade through the whole thing. It was long on purpose to thoroughly cover the separate topics, as I like to give many excerpts from various authors to back up the doctrine. But today I will summarize and only give a few excerpts that are of particular importance. It will be best to summarize in the order of the topics that I covered in those episodes. So here we go. First, the topic of contemplation has always been one of my favorite subjects ever since and, and during my 12 years as a Benedictine monk at Christ the King Abbey. But what I quickly learned is that contemplation is, to a large extent, forgotten especially in the traditional Catholic world, largely due to the fact that traditional Catholics have had to concentrate their attention and energy on what's happened to the Catholic Church, on Vatican II and the New Mass and the, the modernist uh, quote-unquote popes after Pope Pius XII. So in a sense, we have had bigger fish to fry than delving deep into ascetical and mystical theology and the various controversies that have taken place in those disciplines over many centuries. And that is the other thing that I discovered, is that not all authors agree with each other, that there are different schools of thought, different authorities in the past that got into somewhat heated debates on contemplation and various aspects of mystical theology, that everyone's Catholic, but that there are legitimate differences in opinions on certain matters. What happened as a result, I think, is that perhaps one school of thought became better known because their books happened to be republished by traditional Catholics, whereas the opposing school of thought were forgotten. Uh, the more contemplative school of thought didn't really get republished to the same degree. There are many excellent spiritual books that are like buried treasures that are getting harder and harder to find. And that's why I try to quote from those authors that are harder to find. The doctrine concerning contemplation, particularly the beginning stages of it, the transition period between meditation and effective prayer to the prayer of contemplation, which has been called the dark night of the senses, all this is almost forgotten today. It's, uh, it's tragic and a great shame because it is my firm belief that this is one of the most important periods in the spiritual life to understand and to get right. And if you are in the position to advise and direct others, even more so, you have to get this right, or you may misdirect those under you. Many devout Catholic souls, uh, more than what most people think, are actually at this stage in their spiritual life, but because the lack of knowledge and lack of spiritual direction, most fall back. Most will not progress. Most will not become contemplatives, even though God is offering this great grace to them. And there are, there are serious differences of opinions in some spiritual writers of when contemplation begins in the spiritual life. And the difference is of great practical importance. Some authors, like Father Tankery and Father Poulain and Father Gebert, uh, all having ascetical and mystical theology textbooks, 
put the beginnings of infused contemplation way far in the spiritual life, at the beginning of what is called the unitive stage. And because Father Tankery and his classic and well-known textbook, The Spiritual Life, is thought to be authoritative, then his doctrine of uh, concerning contemplation is taken as the correct one, without the reader knowing that there is a different school of thought than his. Now, of course, Father Tankery's book is great, and except in this area of contemplation and the dark night of the senses, it does contradict St. John of the Cross. St. John of the Cross, Father Gergou Lagrange, Father John Aaron Tarot, Father Gabriel St. Mary Magdalene, Abbot John Chapman, and various other authors, uh, teach something quite different than Father Tankery does. And of all the authors mentioned, St. John of the Cross is, of course, the most authoritative and because he's a doctor of the church, precisely because of his mystical teaching. As this is a summary show, let me summarize. Let me sum up the crux of the problem. The primary reason why Tankery is wrong in his treatment of contemplation is this. He puts the beginning of contemplation and the night of the senses way too far into the unitive stage of the spiritual life, the advanced stage. But this is way too late. The spiritual life has been traditionally divided into three parts or three ages of the interior life, the purgative, the illuminative, and the unitive stage, or sometimes they're called the beginnings, proficient, and the advanced stages, or the perfect stage. The transition from discursive meditation and effective prayer into the prayer of mystical contemplation or infused contemplation comes about by what St. John of the Cross calls the night of the senses. So we, we all have heard that book, The Dark Night of the Soul. Uh, but in that book, there are two nights. There's a night of the senses and the night of the spirit. The night of the senses starts first. It's for the beginners. And the night of the spirit is, is farther on in the spiritual life. Uh, so this is the confusion that we that we put the night of the spirit that is far in the spiritual life, but the night of the senses start earlier. Saint John of the Cross himself, the doctor of mystical contemplation, clearly put the night of the senses way earlier in the spiritual life than Tankery. In fact, they put it, and other authors who agree with them, they put it at the end of the beginner stage as the transitional crisis that brings the soul into the illuminative stage, into the prayer of contemplation. Tankery puts it near the end. St. John of the Cross and others put it near the beginning. Now, the first stage of the spiritual life, the purgative stage, is the stage of you have abandoned uh, uh, or you're abandoning uh, habitual mortal sin and you're developing the beginnings of virtue and a prayer life. So it's really the beginning of the spiritual life. Now, why is this important? This may seem merely a difference of theory, but it, it does have potentially huge differences in the practical order. The reason is, is that a beginner, after a year or two or three of generosity in the service of God, maybe even quicker, will experience the night of the senses. And if they follow Tankery or are directed by a priest who uses the Tankery's um, scheme of prayer, his, his uh, 
advice, will think that this night of the senses is just a, a dryness, just a, a passing aridity, a dry spell in their spiritual life. They will wait patiently for it to pass, but it won't pass. The dryness won't go away. And so the soul will feel that progress is impossible. And they will go to the director, and the director will say that the aridity will pass. Be patient, he will say. Try harder. Uh, force yourself to meditate. Um, maybe you're doing something wrong. And since Tankery puts the night of the senses way far into the spiritual, in the unitive light stage, this beginner can't possibly be that perfect. This can't possibly be the night of the senses, so it has to be a passing aridity. Or it's the soul's fault that it's in the dryness. And this is the problem in putting the night of the senses in the wrong place in the spiritual life. In direct contradiction to the idea of the night of the senses being a very advanced trial, let's hear what St. John of the Cross says himself in his famous mystical work, The Dark Night of the Soul. This is taken from Book 1, Chapter 1. Quote, Into this dark night, souls begin to enter when God draws them forth from the state of beginners, which is the state of those that meditate on the spiritual road, and begins to set them in the state of progressives, which is that of those who are already contemplatives, to the end that after passing through it, they may arrive at the state of the perfect, or the unitive stage, which is that of the divine union of the soul with God, unquote. So clearly, St. John of the Cross puts it as the transition between the first stage and the second. Tankery puts it between the second and the third. It's a big difference. St. John of the Cross in chapter 8 says this, This night, which, as we say, is contemplation, produces in spiritual persons two kinds of darkness or purgation, corresponding to the two parts of man's nature, namely the sensual and the spiritual. And thus the one night or purgation will be sensual, wherein the soul is purged according to the sense, which is subdued to the spirit, and the other is a night or purgation, which is spiritual, wherein the soul is purged and stripped according to the spirit, and subdued and made ready for the union of love with God. The night of sense is common and comes to many. These are the beginners. And of this night we shall speak first. The night of the Spirit is the portion of very few, and these are they that are already practiced and proficient, of whom we shall treat hereafter. Unquote. And that is all that uh, I will say on that part of the subject. In this first episode on contemplation that I dealt with, I, I quoted many other authors who agreed with St. John of the Cross and stated categorically that his doctrine is the true one, namely that the beginnings of infused contemplation start at the trial called the night of the senses, and that this trial is not rare, but comes to many. St. John said it, quote, the night of sense is common and comes to many. These are the beginners, unquote. So let us just go back and talk about progress in prayer. What does progress actually look like? It often happens that those, both religious and layperson, who are sincerely trying to avoid all sin, both mortal and venial, that's very important as the beginning, and have earnestly striven to give themselves to daily prayer, find themselves, sooner or later, but eventually, 
unable to pray as they once did at the beginning. Something changes at one point, and they feel helpless in prayer. Gone are the days of meditations full of light and consolation. The soul had become accustomed to thinking out a religious topic more or less daily, learning more and more about the various mysteries of the faith, using their imagination and memory to assist them in this prayer, stirring up affections and acts of the, of the heart towards God. But then one day it becomes impossible to meditate or extremely repugnant to do so. The soul had a whole prayer routine filled with various vocal prayers and devotions and rosaries and chaplets, novenas, and then all of it starts to become distasteful. The hunger for prayer remains, but the complexity of the whole routine becomes oppressive to the spirit and not doesn't feel like it's truly prayer. And this distresses the soul very much because it sincerely wants to pray and be united with God, but it can't seem to find him as it once did. The soul wants God, but not merely thoughts about God. It wants to adore God and love him directly and simply without words or thoughts by by almost a simple gaze upon him as though he was in the room and you could looking upon him. The God has become the beloved and this prayer is is a prayer of faith, of desire and of love. It's very simple. Very simple and spiritual. Naturally, this dry and senseless way of communing with God in prayer is confusing and troubling. It feels like the total waste of time. I'm not getting my prayers done. I'm not reading anything. I'm not getting my devotions in. So the soul feels like it's being idle and displeasing to God. And yet, this silent adoration of God gives the soul a mysterious strength at the same time and a sense of interior peace. And this can be trying and confusing at first for the soul is unaccustomed to approach God in such a spiritual manner as spirit to spirit without using words or the imagination or vocal prayers or devotions or crutches. And this is where confidence and trust in God is of vital importance, lest the soul, fearing that it is displeasing God or is idle, tries to force itself to pray as it used to, but cannot any longer. And what is worse gives up prayer altogether. But such a soul must never give up this prayer of simplicity, but give itself completely, generously, and lovingly to this new attraction. For this prayer is the beginning, but only the beginning, of infused contemplation. It is the humble gateway that is meant to lead us, if we are faithful and generous and persevering, to profound sanctity and to the heights of mystical contemplation. That is, to what the saints term transforming union of the soul and its mystical marriage with God. But what is contemplation itself? We can define contemplation this way. Contemplation is a supernatural love and knowledge of God, simple and obscure, that means hidden, infused by God into the summit of the soul, the high point, not to the feelings, to the very substance of the soul, giving it a direct and experimental contact with them. So contemplation is a mystical prayer. 
But there is a vast range of intensity for this prayer. Remember, mystical just means hidden, mysterious. But there is a vast range of intensity for this prayer. But at any point, even at the beginning stages, it is infused. It's like grace in general. Grace, divine grace, is infused into the soul at every sacrament, but you don't and by praying for the increase of grace, every time we pray and perform a good work, we increase in grace. But you don't necessarily feel that grace being infused, or you don't necessarily feel the side effects of that grace in a, in a sensible way. So similarly, contemplation at the beginning, it doesn't bring a clear, definite knowledge of God. It doesn't begin with consolations. You don't even know what's going on at first. It infused contemplation begins imperceptibly. And then as you give yourself, however, as you give yourself over to this prayer over perhaps years, it may take decades perhaps, but it can become more and more intense. This presence of God can become more intense and satisfying and immersive, leading the soul to what's called the prayer of quiet, the prayer of union, uh, with transforming union and mystical marriage. So those are grades of prayer. It gets more and more intense, God's presence, and your absorption into God. Uh, uh, what I mean by that, your faculties become more and more absorbed in God, and that God becomes more active in your prayer. You become more passive. So at the beginning of the spiritual life, we, be, we do most of the work in a sense. God gives us grace, but we have to do a lot of the work. Then as we grow and grow and expand, and God give, draws us closer and closer to himself, he does more of the work. Just like the gifts of the Holy Ghost, they, the Holy Ghost begins to uh, uh, be more active and the soul reacts to God, is more pliant in his hand. Now you have to cooperate, but again, the soul is more passive. As you grow closer and closer to God, God is taking more and more uh, and grace is becoming more and more influential in your life. So these last uh, are advanced forms of prayer, and they are rare, but the beginnings of contemplation are common and is found in dryness and aridity. So contemplation is an intuition of God, born of love, born of divine charity, of supernatural love for God. In fact, it, it in a sense, it is love of God. It, it's It's a gift of God, this form of prayer, a grace that God gives to the soul in proportion as it is clean and emptied of all affections contrary to God. So sin, of course, and in inordinate affections. So contemplation, the essence of contemplation, it's not visions. We're not talking about private revelations, ecstasies, raptures, levitations, or miracles, or stigmata, or whatever. Those are accidental phenomena of, of mysticism. They're not the heart of mysticism. The heart of mystical theology and mysticism is this infused knowledge of God, this contact with God in a more experimental way of just like you may know all about 
the president of you of the United States. You may you've read every book about him, every article, but unless you actually meet him and know him personally, you don't really know him. The same type of way we know all about God, but have you had that contact with God? Contemplation is a more experimental, a more direct knowledge of God. Now it doesn't give you uh, hidden uh, truths in the sense of of doctrines, because uh, that could easily lead to heresy. But the doctrines become alive. You start realizing from experimentally that God is the Holy Trinity. God is pure love. God is infinite. God is almighty. But you learn in a more experimental way of the truths of the faith. So these accidental phenomena, the, the visions and raptures and levitations, they may appear in the spiritual life as you advance, but they're not the heart of the spiritual life. They're not to be sought after. They're not to be uh, prayed for. But, but contemplation is meant to be prayed, prayed for because it is progress in the knowledge and love of God. Those other things are gifts or graces given to an individual soul mostly for the benefit of other people. Their grace is given for them. Contemplation is given to perfect and sanctify the soul itself. Now, not everyone who experiences a little dryness in prayer is going through the dark night of the soul. There are signs, three signs, that St. John of the Cross lists and explains that indicate a soul is passing from meditation to the more simple and spiritual form of prayer called contemplation. When all three signs are present at once, then contemplation is beginning. If not, then it's something else. So St. John of the Cross lists these three signs, and they're usually listed in this, in this order, although in, diff in different uh, places in St. John of the Cross's works, they may be listed out of order. But this is the usual order they are listed. One, the soul is unable to meditate. Two, the soul takes no pleasure in using the imagination or fixing it on any particular thing, earthly or heavenly. And also that there's a dryness and aridity in the spiritual life. Three, the soul delights to be alone, quiet and reposed, waiting lovingly upon God without reflecting upon anything or even desiring to do so. So, the first sign is that one finds oneself unable to meditate. What do we mean by meditation, first of all? Meditation, properly so-called, is the thinking out of a religious subject using the various faculties of the soul, such as the imagination, the memory, the reason, with the ultimate practical aim of stirring the will to make acts of faith or love or humility or patience or and to form practical resolutions that will actually influence your life. So this first sign, the soul will begin to feel a great repugnance in reflecting and centering the mind on anything during prayer. And this repugnance and difficulty is primarily experienced during prayer. It doesn't mean that one cannot force oneself to think about religious subjects or imagine a mystery of the faith, but as soon as one forces oneself to think too much in prayer, the sense of praying ceases, and one begins to merely think. Thinking is not prayer. Prayer is the raising of the mind and heart to God. 
It's not just it's not just abstract thinking or reasoning. It is that that sense of raising your mind and heart to God. Saint John of the Cross writes, quote, when a man cannot meditate nor exert his imagination nor derive any satisfaction from it as he is wont to do. That is the sign. And the time comes when the things we have continuously meditated on fail to move us anyways. And we feel that we have derived all the substance from them, all the stimulus we can for the will to love God. And the affections begin to pall. Nothing seems to move the soul to devotion. All the old thoughts and pious reflections, they don't seem to produce the same effect in the soul as they once did. They leave the soul dry. St. John of the Cross, in his dark night, speaking of this sign, said, quote, that the soul is no longer able to meditate or reason by the use of the senses of imagination as aforetime, however much it may endeavor to do so. For God now begins to communicate himself to it, no longer through sense, as was the case, by means of reasonings, which both united and divided its knowledge, that means uh, analysis and synthesis, but by pure spirit in which there is no succession of thoughts or ideas communicating himself by an act of simple contemplation to which neither the exterior or interior senses of the lower part of the soul can attain, so that from now on, the imagination and fantasy cannot gain any help in such consideration. Now, this sign, this first sign, is not the most important of the three signs, but it is perhaps the most characteristic of the night of the senses because it is precisely that the senses, the interior senses, get into a night in which they do not work like they once did in prayer. The reasoning, the imagination, the memory were once able to assist the soul in prayer, and then all of a sudden they stop. They get bogged down. They get chained down, as it were. So again, we have to understand what contemplation is in itself. St. John of the Cross tells us that contemplation is infused loving knowledge of God, that he himself, God himself, is mystically, mysteriously infusing into the soul directly, directly bypassing the imagination and memory. So this infusion by God of knowledge of himself directly to the high point of the soul causes this inability to meditate. It is what spiritual writers call the ligature, or the binding of the faculties, or the interior senses of imagination and memory. They're bound. They can't be used as they once were. For for example, not too many people know this. Uh, I did mention it before in a previous episode, that St. Ignatius of Loyola was a great contemplative himself. He had this grace of contemplation, and this ligature was so strong in him that he was his soul would become so absorbed in the thought of God and the knowledge of God in contemplation that he could barely even pray in he could barely even pray his divine office and in fact received a dispensation that every time he went to prayer, that's it. He couldn't think of anything else except being totally absorbed in adoration of God. The second sign is this. The soul takes no pleasure in using the imagination or fixing it on any particular thing, earthly or heavenly. 
This somewhat overlaps what has been said already, but it more specifically refers to aridity or dryness in prayer. Basically, the lack of sensible consolation in the things of God, but also the lack of sensible consolation in any created thing. So that the soul is kind of torn between the supernatural and the natural world. It doesn't seem to belong to either of them. It doesn't find the pleasure in the things of God, in prayer, hearing mass, spiritual reading. It doesn't fill the soul with what that sensible consolation and peace that it once did. And yet, one doesn't find consolation with worldly entertainment or pleasure either. So there's a hunger for God and yet without sensible consolation. So the soul is not worldly. The dryness is not coming from, from laxity or it just giving in to sin. The soul is very devout, is, is avoiding sin, and yet not finding the pleasure in spiritual things at the same time. So it, it is a crisis. It's, it is a suffering. It is a trial. Now, finally, the third sign, the soul delights to be alone in quiet and repose, waiting lovingly upon God without reflecting upon anything or even desiring to do so. In the midst of all this aridity and confusion that the soul is going through in this transitional period with the inability to meditate and derive on any consolation from prayer, with all perhaps all the extra temptations that might come along with this trial, the soul has found a secret source of spiritual strength and joy. A new kind of prayer arises in the soul, a very simplified prayer. And it's as briefly and as simply as this, the soul delights to be simply in the presence of God, in silent, wordless, adoration, a gazing upon God in faith. Let me repeat that. The soul delights to simply be in the presence of God in silent, wordless adoration, a gazing upon God in faith. So the soul doesn't feel urged to recite a whole paragraph of prayer. Perhaps the soul might recite a little aspirational prayer just to keep the imagination from straying. But what's going on deep inside is almost a gazing, almost a looking upon God. And the soul doesn't know exactly what's captivating it, but it knows that something is, or rather, someone is. So it is a prayer of love for the presence of God. That presence at first is very uh, vague, very mysterious. And I've used this example before, that the soul feels as though it is in a dark room, but someone is in the room. We've all had that experience. We, we know when someone is in the room with us. If we turned off the light, you can sense their presence. And this is what happens in this prayer. You eventually become more and more conscious of there's something, there's someone here, there's someone with me that I'm in love with. I love this divine person, but I don't really, I don't see it clearly yet. So God is, in a sense, captivating you interiorly, and then more and more re reveals himself. 
and his perfections, the beauty of God. And I will close with two excerpts, one first from Father Gabriel Diefenbach, a Capuchin priest in his book written in 1946. It's a great book called Common Mystic Prayer. Quote, this simple prayer is a good to be wished for with all one's heart. With it comes all other goods to the soul, strength, consolation, virtue, ever-increasing union with its loving divine spouse. Such prayer indeed belongs to the line of development of the prayer life and has ever been considered in Catholic tradition as the likely and normal outcome of the spiritual life earnestly lived. Some who come to this prayer may be very imperfect. They frustrate grace because of voluntary strayings, attachments, sense indulgence, worldliness. They feel miserable because they cannot meditate and find no relish in prayer books or exercises of devotion that previously brought consolation. Yet because of these willful imperfections, they get nothing out of that simple prayer to which God is now drawing them. They may not be aware of what the obstacles are or even of their own willing, unwillingness to get rid of them. They may conclude that their apparent distaste for prayer comes from causes outside themselves, but the causes are within, in their unruly senses, interior and exterior. They yield to daydreaming, vainglorious thoughts, vindictive thoughts, imaginings of pleasure of sense, and so on. Thus they hinder God's operation and lose the grace and profit of simple prayer. Let the soul of goodwill that desires to advance and to taste of the sweet intimacy of friendship with Jesus, let that soul pursue its prayer seriously. Then, if it finds difficulties and obstacles, these may be only apparent and not real. For the soul must pray. It is a necessity of human nature and should therefore be easy. The difficulty comes in our not understanding the true nature of prayer or some of its changing phases. When one knows this and learns to correspond to the workings of grace, one perseveres with little trouble and soon comes to relish prayer as that which is as natural almost as breathing. And if grace brings one to a more effective and unitive form, a contemplative form, a prayer of the heart, there is no reason to shy away at the idea of contemplation or at the word mysticism as a some unscalable peak in the Christian and spiritual life. A difficulty here is inducing a person whom God is leading in this way to give up his elementary notions of prayer. At least the desire to pray is present, and this of itself is prayer. And finally, from Abbot Columbia Marm Columba Marmion, OSB, about the, that we should desire and pray for the grace of contemplation. He says, quote, where there might be presumption and temerity is in thinking to attain by our own efforts, either to that plenitude of union, which depends solely on the free and supreme will of God, or in desiring those accidental phenomena which sometimes accompany contemplation, that is visions, ecstasies, revelations, levitations, etc. But if it concerns what is of the very substance of contemplation, that is to say, the most pure, simple, and perfect knowledge which God gives us therein of himself and his perfections, and the intense love the soul derives from this knowledge, then aspire with all your strength to possess a high degree of prayer and to enjoy perfect contemplation. 
For God is the principal author of our sanctity. He acts powerfully in these communications, and not to aspire to them would be not to desire to love God with our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind, and our whole strength. It is clear, however, that we ought to subject this desire to the will of God. He alone knows what is best for our souls, and while sparing neither efforts to remain generously and humbly faithful to present grace, nor our ardent aspirations towards higher perfection, it is extremely important to keep always in peace, assured as we are of God's goodness and wisdom in regard to each one of us." Unquote. <laughs> 